Hello everyone and welcome to episode 117 of Dominaria's Judgment, a mostly weekly, mostly constructed, mo ma eh, constructed magic podcast. There we go. I'm Dom Harvey, I'm here with Ari Lex, and this week we... It's something of a slow news week, but there has somehow been a lot of discourse to sink our teeth into, and uh, some of that has originated from you, uh, because one of your uh, recent articles just covered the topic of uh, slow play in competitive magic, which is something of a timeless issue. I mean, this is uh, bedeviled uh, paper play for as long as paper play has been around, uh, but it feels like the context for it has changed somewhat, and it is sadly still as relevant as it ever has been, perhaps more so. So I'll let you uh, introduce the the background there and then I guess the, the framing that we're going to use for that in the episode here as well. Yeah, I mean, saying it originated with me is bold because a lot of it was discussion <laughs> that showed up in the aftermath of Worlds, which I, I did not count how many matches on camera were decided by a player scooping in turns. But there was, was it a noticeable one? Um was it Willie who got the scoop into day two and then top aided? Uh, it was it was like Willie versus Yuda in round seven, if I remember correctly. Yes, and also uh, Willie versus me in a round earlier in that day as well. So uh, two scoops getting him into day two, and then uh, I think that was not the end of that story there either. And then, of course, who could forget back in Barcelona, uh, the the whole round sixteen craziness, which ended in uh, an unintentional draw, which. Uh, I think there was uh, an actual slow play warning given there, and they went to seven extra turns instead of five, uh, as is the, the kind of official remedy. Uh, but I know that it was a talking point immediately after that, and it seems to be after basically every high-level televised event. And there are good reasons for that, and some not-so-good reasons for that, but ones which still merit uh, addressing, and so hopefully we can cover the, uh, the broad sweep of those today. Yeah, and I do want to throw out one stat from Worlds, which is kind of astonishing. I just, like, literally just pulled this up, and I'm like, well, how bad is the problem, actually? Because you hear people talking about, like, oh, this happened on camera, oh, this happened in this key match. If you look at just, like, through the end of the first draft, 10 rounds played, if anyone intentionally drawed before that, they're a maniac. About 2% of matches in this tournament had were, were draws. Uh, 16 players had draws, and four of those players actually... Uh, ended up with a draw out of day two, so at 3-3-1. Three, three, and one. So that that's pretty bad, I think. In your mind, name a player who's slow, and then look them up on MTG ELO Project, and you would be shocked if they had more than, like, 3-4% to 4 lifetime draw percentage at a uh, professional level event. So, like, 2% is, like, the field is starting to encroach on the, like, all-time draw greats. There's an initial desire to blame game design, which is true. Like, um, the example I listed in the article, which is on Channel Fireball, um, and it's on the, you know, free to read. If you want to, you know, read this, uh, have, like, a written piece to look through and, like, a lot of the details. But, like, if you just look at the card Fable of the Mirror Breaker, it's a slow card. So, like, you play Fable, and then you pull out your dice, and then you make a goblin token, which you have to dig out because it's, like, a goblin shaman token. And it's not, like, any other kind of goblin token. And then the next turn, you, like, draw your card for the turn and then are immediately faced with a decision point that you cannot pre-plan of discarding two cards. And then next turn, you, like, get your Fable, and then you fiddle with the sleeve, and then it flips. Fable doesn't really kill your opponent that fast. It just, like, provides material that prolongs a game. The games have slowed down because of design, but I think there's there's a couple aspects of, like, there are always things you can do to make the game more likely to complete in a way, like, without expending a ton of equity. And we'll, we'll get to that. But the other is that, like, I think that a, a couple year gap from people just like playing the games is a real cost because, uh, and we'll also get to it, but like one of the things that is like the physical aspects of the game and the physical repetition are definitely lost over a couple of years and yeah, uh, it, regaining those like comes at a cost. 
there was a very noticeable de-rusting period where I would say late 21, early 22, when these bigger events were starting to come back uh, in paper. And so you had this confluence of design had moved in a direction where there were just so many game objects being made all the time and just the 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 actual gameplay itself was going to take longer regardless and then also those skills were rusty people had not played uh consistently or at that level in some time and so they were having to get back in that group and so you could you could really feel that difference even if it was hard to articulate or give uh, specific examples for and i do wonder so you you started uh the article framing it as an issue which everyone has experienced but some certainly more so than others and you had a very impressive uh no draw record uh, no unintentional draw record uh over the course of your competitive career how likely would that or how long do you think that would take to expire nowadays when the, the car design is trending in that direction and we're all a little older and a little rustier too like if you were back in the thick of things do you think you'd be able to keep that up still it might be more difficult i mean i will point to i so to put that in context, so if you... There's two ways to look at this. One is just literally I played about 1,500 matches at Grand Prix and Pro Tours um, over my competitive career. One of those ended in an unintentional draw. Exactly one. Uh, and then I want to say there were a, maybe five total that ever went to turns. Where, like, And the only other time, like, I have a scoop in turns, but it basically doesn't count. Because I was playing in a... It's basically like... I was playing Red Black versus Nexus, and I made my opponent demonstrate a kill two of the three games under the intention of, like, you know, I'm going to take the 1% chance that you fail, and if you do, then I just get to untap and kill you. But if you don't, like, you're going to kill me. It doesn't matter that you took all five of the extra turns, like, whatever. Pointing to that one draw, um, it was in the context of something very similar, which was the... It was me versus David Ochoa at Pro Tour Eldritch Moon playing the Emrakul Ultra Complicated Turn Decisions Elder Deep Fiend deck against Bank Company, the, like, original... I feel like that deck is, like, almost the original, like, game objects theme deck. Just, like, Tireless Tracker and Company, and then, like, your Dustwatch Recruiters start flipping back and forth. And it's a huge mess of, like, instant speed stuff. Um, and that was the one draw, and it was, like... I don't know. I feel like I would be prone to pointing out these things that I did because, like, I think about them more in the context of, like, having gotten that draw. But at the same time, I don't, I don't see myself ever hitting, like, a, you know, 1% draw match rate, but I could see myself picking up draws at more than, you know, once per decade. Yeah, that bank company format certainly was a turning point of sorts, where if you go and watch the, the world's coverage from that year in 2016... That finals between BBD and Marcio, it is, depending on uh, what you enjoy watching, either one of the most thrilling and compelling matches of all time or one of the most painstaking dirges that you'll ever have to sit through. Uh, there's just so much staring at each other across a clogged board and clues being made and clues being cracked and things moving between zones and game objects flying around. And that really feels like nowadays we just desensitize that because that is what magic is but at the time when you could in theory play another way it stood out a lot more and it was a bit more jarring i think back to now i'm trying to go through the mental roller decks of other particularly egregious cards or decks or formats for that i guess the uh course of crucifix is pretty notorious for this during its run in standard where in a lot of those like abs and mirrors and so on just the the actual game mechanics of that card where you would be revealing cards from the top of your deck and having to do so pretty carefully so that you don't accidentally reveal the next card down and then a, a judge has to come over and that becomes the whole thing uh so you're 
carefully revealing the top card of your deck and then maybe you're you're playing it from the top and then you're picking up your pen to mark the the, the one life that you just gained and if it's and then you're revealing the next card and if it's a fetch land well now you're adjusting your life total again and you're searching and then shuffling and then going through the whole same process and that card maybe is more responsible for more draws than any one uh, player or trend or anything like that. But there, there are definitely some contenders for that title now. And uh, you, you mentioned Fable, certainly a a big offender there across all of the formats that it uh, is is legal in uh, still. But on, on top of the uh, the kind of a turn progression that you uh, gave, there's also the fact that a lot of the things that you want to copy with Fable in these decks either produce more game objects themselves or have some other ETB ability or something. So when you copy them, that is a whole additional step in itself. And then once the reflection dies, and it usually is a lightning rod for removal, but now if it's if it's out of the sleeve, you're picking it up and turning it around, putting it back in the sleeve, putting it in your graveyard. So even if you're doing all of the individual steps of that card very efficiently, there are just so many of them that are so much of you that uh, it's still going to be a, a big time sink. Uh, and th the fact that Fable lets you play good magic in terms of uh, you're less likely to die to Flood or to Screw, and you're, it, it extends games which are contested, which is a good thing about the card, and it's a great reason to put it in your deck, pretty bad from a uh, finishing rounds uh, on time uh, standpoint, though. So yeah, th that card is egregious. And then like Wedding Announcement is a big offender from... Uh, this uh, past year of standard and if you had to compile a list of cards like that if you go back to 2014-2015 it might be course of Crucifix and then I guess tireless tracker kind of and then there are a few others but it's it's a short list now it just feels like basically every card and especially kind of selecting for the ones that are priced to move in in standard or in pioneer like there's a, a an active emphasis on those yeah, and you sort of touched on another thing, which is there is also a game mechanic that has changed in the same direction of just, like, more games with more continuance, and that's the London Mulligan, where uh, previously there were a lot more games that were decided by a player making a decision about whether they're keeping a one-lander, or, like, when you mold a five, your hand is largely all in on a specific thing versus, like, oh, I've got, like, a thing and a fatal push, and I get to, like extend the game an extra three turns because of that. Um, and also just like if players are mulliganing, even, you know, what percentage more do you think someone mulligans because of the London mull? 20%, 30%. Okay. Multiply that by, okay. Each game, if a player mulligans 20% more, and then they spend another two minutes shuffling their deck afterwards. Uh, yeah, that's just like an extra, you know, 25 seconds spent a game every round. That's just a minute of every round just gone on shuffling because of the London Mulligan. And I guess that probably doesn't even count like dual side. Like it's that, that is like a like noticeable fraction of the round clock that just disappears. Yeah. There is also that classic, uh, almost game theory dilemma of, okay, well, if let's say one player is mulliganing, the other player thinks they're going to mulligan too. Yeah. On paper, there is a procedural order for, uh, this player declares a mulligan, and then this other player reveals whether they're declaring a mulligan too. And so if you stick rigidly to that, which is you know anyone's right to do, then there is a lot of dead time where it's, okay, my opponent has mulled six, and now they're thinking over there whether they're going to keep their hand. And yeah, the information about if I'm keeping my seven is going to impact that to some small degree. So maybe I just wait until they declare that. And then, all right, well, you're going to six, I'm going to six too. And now I'm going to start shuffling and monopolizing part of the round clock like that by myself and there's some stuff in that gray area where 
legally and maybe ethically too. There's no duty to accelerate that and to give any information away in the process. But if you are playing with a sense of urgency, usually stuff like that is kind of the first thing to fall by the wayside if people are trying to finish the round on time. Um, so there's stuff there. And then there's stuff that will come to you later on of uh, deliberate negligence in terms of trying to finish around on time, which I wish was uh, monitored and penalized a lot more closely. Yeah, I mean, you say that there's no obligation. The obligation is that you just chuck a match point. Like, we talk about these people, like, throwing away uh, day two of worlds on draws. Although, I, there may be one instance where it may have been a little bit of intention, but, you know, we'll let people dig into Andre Strassi's Twitter for that one. Um, the, uh, the, the issue is that, like, every time you draw, a match point just disappears into thin air. And there's this general idea of, like, okay, so imagine you're going to draw... And you were maybe 40% to win the match. Like, you are actually leaving match points on the table by not finishing that match. Like, uh, the quote I actually use in the article is, uh, it actually, we'll, we'll list the, here the full extent of this quote because, uh, I left something out for print, which is, um, if you are like drawing a significant number of matches, there's one of three things that's true. I said two in the article and we'll put the third. Uh, one is that you are leaving match points on the table. Two is that the reason you're not leaving match points on the table is because your match win rate is under 33%, at which point you should fix that first, I guess. And then the third is that you're, um, I forget which 1990s era cheater said it, but it was, uh, if I ever win game one, I am, uh, never losing the match. Uh, that is not condoned, but that is the third option. <laughs> yes. And sometimes the tournament structure makes the stakes very clear. So, for example, that, conclusion to the match to to put it in neutral terms between Yusa and Willie at the end of day one this is in a tournament where you have to go four and three to make day two and so both players ending three three and one eliminates both of them and both players know that there's no fudging the numbers there like that is going to happen and so that then leads to the d decisions being made about that and uh US dollars changing zones potentially as well and just all, all of the spoken and unspoken ways that that gets resolved and honestly when you when you've seen enough of those examples you come to think that there is just no good way for a round to end artificially once it gets into turns like if if it is a draw then it feels like something has gone wrong somewhere uh, if one player is conceding there's always this back and forth over who and there's often some larger context around that so for example the uh the draw between Hain and uh now world's runner up as well finishing off an amazing season uh kazune kasaka at the end of barcelona which i was very thankful for um I, as people said at the time i don't know if that happens if kasaka is you know european or north american pro who has been around for a little longer and speaks better english and e even if that conclusion is not negotiated at the table there just on the Pro Tour stream for some reason, because they didn't cut away with all these people watching, like, there is going to be some implied understanding after the fact. If that's happening, well, that's bad. But then also, if it's not happening just because of one person's, uh, like, language barrier, that's also not good. Like, it, the whole thing is just scuffed, however you slice it. Yeah, there's really not a lot to talk about there besides how bad the whole thing is, uh, regardless of how it actually resolves. Um... So, yeah, don't get draws, I think, is the general takeaway. And I guess I want to put this in context of, like, so, um, you know, we talk about, like, this couple percent figure. Like, I don't think about how much, like, effort people put into trying to gain a percent here and there on so many other things in Magic. Uh, like, very clearly not getting draws is not, like, 
night and day your tournaments are going to turn around. But, like, you should be putting a, at least as much effort into not, like, getting a draw as you are into deciding your, like, last three cyborg slots. Like, that's the level of improvement this is offering, right? Yeah, and the the count of draws is a very in-your-face way to track this, and it, it helps to frame the issue maybe the starkest way to frame the issue is that shoda yasaoka of all people got a draw at worlds uh this time around and he is maybe the last person you know if you had to uh place the future of humanity on someone not getting a draw at a magic tournament it's it's him and Luis and maybe a few others but like he, he's up there for sure and uh the fact that even he got a draw is uh maybe the best illustration of the issues here over and above well oh it's three percent of draws versus 2.5 percent last time like just say Shoda got a draw that's that's really all that needs uh to be said there but then it almost leaves out a big part of the conversation too because you have the matches which uh, in air quotes, should not have ended in a draw, but which did. Uh, but then you also have the matches which just are much less pleasant experiences because of the threat of time that's looming over them. So, I, I mean, we've all had those matches where you hope that there's some mutual understanding that it doesn't benefit either of us for it to end in the draw, but the opponent is showing no sense of urgency whatsoever. And you're, you, so you're playing at warp speed uh, without thinking about it, just taking game actions, relying purely on intuition. The opponent is taking their sweet time as if we're two minutes into the round instead of uh, 48 minutes. Uh, and that is going to have an effect on the outcome of the match, even if the recorded outcome, because of how fast you're going, uh, even if you win the match, there's still like a bitter taste in your mouth. But sometimes like you are less likely to win because you are the person almost holding up your end of the bargain, trying to make sure that this actually reaches some kind of fair conclusion. Um, so even beyond just the matches that end in draws, and it's, as Nassif uh, said on his podcast, like it's easy to joke that, oh yeah, Nassif was going to time a lot, but if Shoda's going to time a lot too, there's a problem there. But then also if, um, you know, everyone else in the tournament is just having this stressful experience when it's 46 minutes into the round, that's not good either. And you uh, that that that's harder to pinpoint, but that is just as big a factor in the grand scheme of things. Very true. Um, I will say another thing that I kind of said in the discussion around this, which is like, I I kind of want to frame this in the sense of like, what can you do versus like, there's very clearly a systemic problem that is at its base solvable in other ways, but like, you as a player aren't going to convince R&D to stop printing fables or or Oh my god, Restoration of Iganjo. Oh my god, that card. <laughs> Anyways, uh, you're not going to trick them into not doing this. I mean, I guess maybe if enough people keep complaining, but like, you know, in two years it'll be fixed, but that's not... Uh, R&D's timeline is not fixing your RCQ next weekend. It is a mutual effort to complete a round, and I, I think that there's, like, when you reach the point where... And this is probably one of the hardest things. So I have always historically been, like, very much like, I'm just going to call Judge, it'll get pushed, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. I think that works in the, like, 2015 era of, like, you're only playing Grand Prix and Pro Tours. There are 8,000 judges in the room. Um, they all speak every language. Like, it's very easy to, like, get away with it when the judging staff is just there and just be like, we're just going to resolve this the way the tournament, you know, tells you to. Um, I'm going to ask for every time extension on every rules call because that that's actually something you should be doing. Like, if you call a judge for a rules call, the first thing you do is just mark down when you call the judge. And I don't know, some judges may react differently to this, but like if I was judging and someone at the end of the ruling was like, can we get the time extension? We call the judge at this time. I'd just be like, thank you. I now get to look at the clock and say, oh, it's been two minutes and 53 seconds. Here's a three minute extension and not have to do any thinking or math. 
Um, if everyone did that, it would make their job a lot easier from my point of view. Onto the topic of it. Like, that works there. Doesn't work at your RCQ where, like, the judge is also at the counter, like, selling someone some Pokemon cards. And, like, I don't even know what the exact rules on, like, staffing an RCQ are. Like, this is not, like, an all-environments, one-size-fits-all solution at all anymore. So, the really, the first step is, you know, that's always an option. But another thing that's important is whenever you're talking about slow play in a match... The understanding between you and your opponent that resolving the match is mutual is really important. Like, getting, you know, this is like the most upfront example of like, oh, you you and your opponent have sat down and before the match even starts, you have made a mutual agreement that you are going to both attempt to finish it. Sometimes you realize that a little later into the round based on like, oh, we had a weird game one of the scan mirror where we all just kept drawing furies back and forth and now it's 23 minutes into the round. We should both play a little faster. Um... There are, like, very clear instances where, like, it's your opponent that is playing slow, and it's very clear. And th those are fine instances where you, like, you know, you still lead on the Wii, but, like, I'm more willing to just, like, yeah, there's some point where you have to, like, have an intervention to fix this. But starting with the Wii, it always helps. And also, there's also this issue where, like, the definition of slow play might not actually be enough to finish the match. The judge that you call's definition of slow play might not be fast enough to finish the match. And you may notice this too late. Like, the, the earlier you try and resolve the issue, which is why there's, you know, you mentioned this Yorian situation. There's a reason you're doing that is because imagine both players start playing fast halfway through the round. They're going to save half as much time as if they started on turn zero. I think the extreme example I give was I played a rounded approach where, where my opponent and I, by their fourth turn, they were on the play and hadn't passed their fourth turn and 10 minutes had elapsed off the clock. My turns had taken sub a minute each. That case, I definitely called the judge because they did not speak English. And I was just like, this is not acceptable. That's the kind of thing where, like, you shouldn't, you know, obviously that's extreme. Obviously, that's like, this is the solution you have to take. But, like, and obviously, we'll get to this more in a little bit. But, like, the first turns of the game can maybe take a little longer. But, like, there's some amount of, like, you can tell seven turns into a game if things are going to be bogged down. And it's better to mention it then to be like, hey, we both need to play faster to resolve this match because it's already been 13 minutes. And then, like, say this five turns into game three when there's only five minutes on the clock. So my default is uh, frame it as a mutual problem, as in, oh, we need to make sure that this uh, match has a winner. We need to keep it moving so we have time for three games and so on. And it's hard for me to gauge, would it be more effective if I was much more direct and implying or just assigning more blame to them? I do worry that framing it as this, this shared issue if it really is them who is monopolizing the clock, gives them cover to deny the problem? Or it's like, yeah, oh, well, they said that we need to, to keep it moving. And if if I'm kind of signaling that I'm not assertive enough to just say outright, hey, you need to, to speed up or I, I'll call a judge and are they just going to take advantage of that? If they, if they are that kind of bad actor who is using the clock to their advantage, then am I just kind of giving them the rope to hang me with if I don't frame it as... The problem that i understand it to be if that makes sense um i think that you can start with the we and then proceed to the you at some point if it's like again if it's clear they're not speeding up then you do that I, I wouldn't even call it bad actor i think a lot of people if you really look at it most of the people responsible for most of the draws aren't really paying attention to the time that they spend uh is yes. kind of the, especially like uh the the further you uh, go away from, like, the Grand Prix Day 2 part of the world to, like, uh, 
a local store. Like, everyone knows there's the person at the local store who ends every FNM 022, and they are clearly not intentionally drawn. They're, it's very unintentional, their draws. Yes, I mean, there, there's the whole, I mean, larger life debate of you don't intend to do this, and yet you are consistently behaving in such a way that will lead to this outcome, and you know that, and this has happened enough times that, like, your failure to actively do anything about it just represents a, a choice in itself. I think that there is there is a certain amount of personal comfort with exactly how much tact you use in these situations that I guess I'll leave up to each player, but, like, I guess the way I'd phrase it is there's an out before proceeding to, like, the uncomfortable part, where if you truly feel uncomfortable enough not to do that, you can take a first step for escalating. But, like, also, you do sometimes have to, like, you know, this is what we're doing. This is how it's going to happen today. Yeah, I, I think one thing that makes it such a thorny issue is, firstly, just defining slow play, whether it's in uh, the magic rules in a formal judging sense, or just in a, like, folk psychology sense of what does it mean to play slowly. That's really hard to pin down. And... To some extent, trying to make it too rigid is going to lead to these uh, these bad spots in the other direction where you know you have people getting judges called on them because they took 31 seconds instead of 29 seconds, and yet the fact that it's over 20 seconds consistently is the problem here and not the fact that it just happened across this arbitrary threshold or, or something like that. Um, and then do you want judges to be rigidly enforcing very specific guidelines? Do you want them to have... Uh, the ability to use their own discretion but then do you trust the average judge who is in that spot to use their discretion that way and if you don't then what does that say about the the judge system more broadly so th there's a lot of stuff that just spirals out of that but it's also a problem that occurs at every level of the tournament so in just in terms of is 50 minutes enough of a uh, time to finish these rounds anymore are the players doing something wrong individual players or just the players collectively between them uh is the car design pushing things in a direction where this is more likely to happen? Uh, what can the judges do about it? So e each actor in the tournament and then also several levels removed from the tournament has some role to play here. And each of them has like a, a tricky job to do where there's no, you know, I, I, even if you think that uh, the car design is to blame to some extent, like, what are you going to say to them? Just just print less cards to do lots of cool things. Like that's, <laughs> there's no way to dress up that uh, solution easily. So I, I think this is, we're going to try and do like this this comprehensive-ish tour of the the various problems here, but without trying to park the blame at any one specific corner, I think. Yeah, and I think that, like I said, I want to focus on the ways that you as a player sitting down at your next tournament can avoid a draw, because that's really kind of the most useful thing at the end of the day. Yeah, so moving into some of those examples, one, uh, one thing that highlights that difficulty is, I think... One of the best ways to avoid getting draws is to play bad decks. And what I mean by that is, if you think about the qualities that uh, these well-rounded, strong decks tend to have, and especially in a format like Standard, where usually the best deck is not some wacky combo deck or anything like that, it's uh, just solid bread-and-butter mid-range of some description, the things that make those decks good are they have agency of some kind at all stages of the game, they have decent comeback mechanisms so that even if they're behind on turn 10 or turn 12, they have things they can draw to turn the game around. And then uh, their cards are flexible. They have lots of options to do lots of different things. Uh, they Their mana curve is not so bloated that, you know, if they miss their fourth land drop, they just die. They're, they're keeping up. And then once they get to their sixth or, th or seventh mana, 
well, they have lots of permutations of how they use their cards at that point. Those are all great things to have, but those are all things which naturally are going to force more decisions that you have to think about and then have to execute on. And in a world where the the good cards are kind of making more good cards, then you have the physical mechanics issues that we mentioned. And if you can't in good faith scoop a game where you're pretty far behind on turn 10 because your deck does actually have the ability to uh, to convert a win from this spot, well then, yeah, you you stick it out for 10 more minutes where, yeah, if you just conceded a few turns ago, uh, the round would have comfortably ended uh, one way or the other. So <laughs> you, you run into this immediate sticking point of, yeah, the, the best way or one of the best ways to avoid draws is to play worse decks that are more kind of a linear or one-dimensional, but that, that's not a solution for individual players or for the player base at large. Well, I'll push back and say that I think that uh, one way to get draws is to play bad decks. I, I wanted... Well, okay. The example I gave here was um, specifically the example of uh, Handshake and Nathan at the Rakdos Mirror Tournament having a mirror breaker that closed the game. Because I think that um, there's some duality of, you're talking about this, well, oh, I can get out of this turn 10 game. And like this idea of like relative uncertainty of your plans in mirrors going to the long game being a lot of what creates this dragging out process of like, both players are going to have some cardboard and it's going to align in some unclear ways and it's never going to be clear who's winning. And, like, that's just not a good game position to be in fundamentally. Like, you don't want to be there, not just because it protracts the game and goes longer, but just because more games come into this point of, like, it's turn 10 and it's a coin flip. Like, you don't... That's bad. Like, you don't... You want to try and win the games. And a lot of the ways you end up doing that are things that are cascading into advantages before that point. Like, I think, actually, I want to point back to... um the Oko Pro Tour is actually a very good example of this, where there is slightly a counterexample where, um, I don't know, I the, the like, Oko Cauldron Familiar deck was kind of a mess. But, like, in the pure Oko Mirrors, um, you weren't scrapping, like, as a reverse of, like, the, the Handshake Endgame, which was just like, I'm going to play Chandra and I'm going to light up the night and you're going to die. The games were actually fought on a much lower level of, like, Someone comes out ahead by, like, having Aether Gust Veil of Summer or some, like, interaction like that. But just, like, having this plan where there's a very clear path to being, like, because I have performed these events, I am now the player in the driver's seat with a very increasing chance of winning. Um, by having a better jack, you are reducing your odds of drawing. That's just, like, how I view it. Maybe the synthesis of that is, so there's the deck choice angle of good decks are able to kind of pivot quickly between different roles and the and so when you're ahead just closing out the game quickly in game time so before the opponent has a lot of time to recover but then also just in round time as well where uh, if yeah if your deck once you've established control only takes a turn or two to actually seal the deal that's a big difference from some control deck where yeah okay you're 95 percent to win but you have to wait for your teferi to ultimate first or something um like that that is uh, a stark difference sometimes and then I think just on a tactical level, understanding what you can do to minimize the in-game time that your opponent has to recover, like that is just a, an essential magic skill, but it's one that conveniently happens to dovetail with this larger goal of don't get draws and light match points on fire at the same time. So I, there's that is one nice example of where the, the in-game kind of uh, strategic stuff does overlap neatly with just the general uh, tournament practice stuff as well. 
Yeah, and I don't I don't even think the control situations are that bad. Again, it comes back to uncertainty. We're like I often when I was playing control at like tournaments, it's you know, this era, it's kind of tough to play control at any tournament, but back when you could do things like play disallow and torrential gear hulk, um one thing that I did a lot more than I think a lot of other people was I would just put myself in a spot where I'd have two counter spells and a gear hulk and I would just be like, okay, I'm going to attack. I'm going to flash in a second gear hulk. We're just attacking. This game is closing in X number of turns. And a lot of the, like, same thing can apply to, like, oh, I've got a Solitude, I've got a Teferi, but really you've created this game state of certainty, and those turns where there's the certainty don't take very long, because there's not a lot of thinking time to just being like, this, this, go, like, this, this, go, I have your next thing unlocked, your next thing's unlocked, all of your draw steps are unlocked, there's no, like, the the turns don't take very long. I'm not, like, opposed to that kind of control game plan. It's sort of these wishy-washy pioneer-style demir things where it's like i've extinction evented my opponent but they've also got like all these other things and i'm like trying to draw to a threat like again it's this uncertain game state which is like bad for your win percentage and bad for your draw percentage at the same time that you were just you i don't know i've always viewed that as something that i'm trying my utmost to avoid in deck selection and it's just happened to align to make both of those things not happen your your mention of cat oven makes me reflect on there are many ways that the whole cat oven thing is just a miserable experience uh but the the way it devours the round clock is is one of those too and uh with the timing of it i guess it wasn't a massive player at first uh once the renovado drain came out and it was kind of overshadowed by so much of the other bullshit going on and even the the oko cat oven deck in standard that you know tommy ashen uh inflicted upon all of us easy to pinpoint oko as the culprit there and not all of this like finicky cat oven stuff but i, I do wonder if people had just been able to play paper magic for uh most of 2020 if you know that uh the cauldron familiar ban in standard which seemed like a little out of place and like a little too much uh, or an overreaction at the time if people had had to just take those physical game actions for six months it would be like yeah, th- this is actually long overdue. Why didn't you do this months ago? Um, and I we was talking to uh, Tristan uh, in Vegas about how he kind of wants to just carry copies of the historic uh, Black Green Food Deck around with him so he can just challenge people to timed food mirrors and just have like a chess clock there ready to go and just ha- have, you know, uh, ha- have it be a test of dexterity as well as uh, strategic uh, understanding. And that was bad enough to become like an actual dexterity and round time issue on arena and god knows what that would have been like in paper as well like you if if you'd ever had one of those mirrors on camera i don't think the broadcast would ever recover yeah i mean you want to talk about historical matchups do you want to play some uh green white mastery of the unseen devotion mirrors on a round clock (laughs) i i don't but i i like where your head is at yeah that that one the the finals of that tournament were something else uh this is like this is not the historic high point of draws, but it's definitely the most uh, persistent. It feels like it's been in a long time. I guess one thing that's worth touching on is that I've talked about like oh having this idea of an end game. I think that something that's really important that's also like strategic and um, good gamesmanship just to like speed it up is that one of the other places that you're going to burn round clock is thinking, and your most complicated decisions are happening in often. You know, like, there's early game decisions that are complicated of, like, what land and two drop, you know, mid-game decisions and end game. Well, usually, like, if you take a note from chess, your early and end games are often relatively solved. Like, 
This is the the Brad Nelson quote that melted Patrick Sullivan's brain about like, oh, I just memorized the first four turns of the game because there's only so many realistic opening hands and like things that are going to happen in every matchup that I just kind of know what has to happen the first four turns of the game. And then you figure out in the mid game. Uh, if you do that, you save like what? I don't know. How much time do you spend thinking about which land to play and all this stuff? You can probably save like half a minute a game of just good thinking time by, you know, seeing your options and just saying, I know I should be doing this. Five seconds to think about if I should deviate from this, make the good play in a lot of these spots. Um, I think that that's really important and a spot where you can save a lot of time and also just be better because you just know what the good things to do are. Like if this is again, another thing where it's like by not drawing, you're also winning. Like it's just two, two for wanting at the same time. Yeah, it's optimizing for making the right play in the first place because if you have to figure all these things out on the fly or or from first principles there's just almost more room to overthink it or get it wrong or just to to go in circles uh, with it whereas if you have honed your intuition to the point where you can autopilot through a lot of these common scenarios and uh, you can follow the the script of the game until it just becomes like this freestyle uh ad lib in the mid game uh, then you're conserving brain power i guess to the extent that's a finite thing and uh stopping yourself from getting tripped up but also you are optimizing for just finishing the round and so yeah maybe one of the more reassuring takeaways here is just focus on playing good magic and and some amount of this will just uh follow along with that yeah yeah i it is very nice that you can you know gain percentage in multiple ways at the same time um i do want to talk about a couple things that are outside the like normal magic percentage thing which is like there is like we talked about this physical aspect of magic right um and i i do joke about this of like i only have a draw because uh luis asked ochoa for tokens and sabotaged the order of his backpack so he spent all the time finding them in our match and then we drew uh obviously a joke sort of because that actually probably unintentionally happened at some point but um you know, I've been talking about a lot of things of like, oh, you know, you save 10 seconds a turn thinking on the first four turns of the game. That's 30 seconds a turn. That's, you know, a minute or two a match. Um, that's one of the things about magic is that like when you talk about um, it's very much a situation where you're playing a long round with a lot of repeated turns and those turns have a lot of repeated actions. So anytime you shave off of these things repeatedly adds up a lot over a match. And so, again, I want to rewind to the point of, like, we're talking about gaining the last percentage here. You're not, like, trying to, like, speed run a magic turn and then, like, knock your deck across the thing and then it cascades into your opponent's backpack. And then, like, their Coke can, like, turns into a flying missile across the room. Like, you don't want one of these cascading Rube Goldberg scenarios. Like, you don't... <laughs> what's the what's the classic one? The the Chion Mageddon, uh, I believe, from, uh, from uh, a GP back in the day where... Um, Mark Jacobson and Paul Chion are playing and one of them accidentally just like knocks the entire other player's deck and lands off the table. Like <laughs> this is this is not how you play fast magic. Like that took a very long judge call and you just don't want to deal with that. But like there are things you can do to reduce the amount like what's the what's the um the GDQ phrase save the frames? Mm. Like if you save 3 seconds a turn doing smarter things uh that's just like an extra turn or two you get to play in a match that goes 50 minutes. Like that's that's an absurd amount of time if you think about it over the course of a match. So like I want to go back to Fable. So um, when I am playing with Fable in paper, 
there is there's a few things that I like to do. So I'll play with checklist cards on basically any flip card because physically flipping a card in a sleeve is the worst thing possible. Like just it is the clunkiest, most awkward thing. I'll just have my deck box. There will be four fables in it. Two of them will be front side. Two of them will be back side. When I play a fable, I pull out the one that's already on the front side. If it flips, I pull out the one that's already on the back side and it just becomes the one in play. If you have clear sleeves for your like backup, like the real copies of Fable, best thing ever. You just flip the card over, it's done. Like that I think is perfect. It, that what I'm talking about actually works best with um the opaque sleeves or whatever, just like different color in your deck box to pull. Works wonderfully for the pathways. That's like a really clutch one for that, where you just pull out the right pathway. And then by the time you get like Maybe you flip one a game because you get to your third pathway, but whatever. You deal with that. Um, the idea of, like, just, like, pull your dice out before the round starts. Like, have your tokens easily accessible. Don't fish through your backpack trying to find it. And then the other thing, too, is that, like, you know, we talked about this at the beginning. where we you're saying, well, no one's obligated to, like, okay, I'm going to, like, wait for the mulligans to resolve. Like, one of the things you can do is just, like, I'm going to, like, make a token, like... You sit, you play Fable and you say, make your goblin token. You throw down a dice on two and then tell your opponent to go and don't worry about finding the goblin token before they start the turn. If you have something marking that it's on the table that is like appropriately correct, like digging for the right token and stopping the pace of play is just time that disappears. Like it's just gone. There's nothing you can do about it. There's other like minor things that you can do that I think just like there are definitely bad habits I have seen people get into with like, this is how I untap my lands. And it's like, why are you picking up each individual land and untapping it one at a time? Don't do that. That That's bad. Yeah. Um, I, in terms of those, those small things that add up, like if you can shave time off the kind of action which you will take in literally every single game of Magic you play. So if your untapping motion is inefficient, well, that's going to harm you in every game and also every turn of every game as well there's no escaping that like that that is just going to be a drag on your contribution to the round clock um so uh, working on that if that's an issue for you like that is the thing which you need to prioritize uh fixing not just out of some sense of how can i avoid getting draws but just out of a general sense of let's all let's all keep this moving you know Let, let's make sure we're all having a, a good time here what one of the things i think is especially damaging here is those kind of uh small micro actions like uh going to your box and getting out the right kind of token and rifling through and finding the right thing that is that that should happen at most once in any given match and ideally uh you have that pile of stuff ready to go if you know the opponent knows what you're playing just just have the stuff there ready to uh, uh to go through if you need to but if if my opponent uh, to, to use the wedding announcement uh example again if they uh, they play wedding announcement. They go to the end of their turn, and they you know they they slowly reach for their dice, uh, find the one on it, put the one down, and then they're grabbing their box. They're opening their box and slowly digging out the human token. If those tokens are going back in the box, knowing that next turn they're going to have to do exactly the same thing, to me that should be treated whether I mean both in the rules and also just across the table as you are deliberately slow playing there because it's actually a lot more clear-cut than any of these weird corner cases of, oh, well, you were thinking for a combined 45 seconds, but actually this contained three discrete game actions in there. If you are going out of your way almost to slow the game down by adding obstacles to this action, which you know you will have to take again, like, you know what you're doing, or you should know exactly what you're doing, and that d deserves every kind of penalty that should be coming its way. Like, that, that is the kind of thing which 
I, I think should be stamped out much more explicitly than it, than it tends to be in practice. Yeah, this reminds me of how uh, technically the rules tell you that shuffling between each mind's desire, or at least in the past they have said that that is the, like, that's slow play and you absolutely cannot do that. It's very reminiscent in my mind. Yeah, and with desire there's this kind of weird thing about what shuffling means in the game of Magic where, yeah, you're, you're meant to have randomized and if you've randomized then you don't need to do this again. But just the the game objects thing of okay like I, i'm not gonna go so far as to say you should be penalized uh for not having exactly the correct types of token or whatever I, i'm not not saying that either if it gets to like the other extreme and uh, honestly i think if uh, i mean to use worlds as an example if, if you're playing one of these esper decks for example where you have your ninjas for kaito and your samurais for the wandering emperor and oh your your white virtue is making knight tokens and there's all, all this stuff going on those cases where someone uses a blank sleeve or a different kind of token or they they turn over some other token just so it's like some clear-ish backside to represent a token which might have other relevant game text i i am not gonna look kindly on someone who ends up accidentally benefiting because uh their blank blue sleeve for kaito like their opponent forgot that uh that was a ninja token that couldn't be blocked for example like that ideally you know, in that kind of setting, the token should be provided for you. In a larger open tournament, that's not realistic to expect. But also, do do yourself a favor, do your opponents a favor too. If if your tokens have relevant game text, make sure you have the right type of token and the right the right text on those tokens. Or I, I think if you're not doing that, the default expectation should be to look upon that unkindly. You should be forced to draw your own token at the table. That, yes. I, I think that's the only <laughs> fix. No, no, I so for uh the RC in Vancouver earlier this year, where I was playing the the standard mono white deck, which may have the most discrete types of tokens of of any deck I've ever played before, between the two different Wandering Emperor Planeswalkers, where one makes a two two Vigilant oh, Samurai, gosh. one makes a two two Double Strike Samurai, and then let's see, there's Wedding Announcement, and then I don't think I had any of the the cards that made my tokens, although that was another common one. Um, like you. Uh, oh, uh, Restoration of Igandro makes the, the colorless spirits as well. Um, and that colorless protection actually highly relevant in that format too. So just, I took time to buy a bunch of the blank checklist cards and draw tokens that also had the right abilities on them because I don't want to be that guy. My opponents don't want me to be that guy. And in an ideal world, the judges would kick that guy out of the building uh, and I don't want to be that guy getting kicked out of the building. So that is less a part of the social contract right now than it should be. But like, we, we need to be the change we want to see in the world on this one. And if that involves uh, public uh, shaming and uh, the, the, the offenders getting locked in uh, stocks, you know, where, where, where you walk into the GP hall and there's like some giant Hawatli statue or something, replace that with uh, the, the, the pillories and a bucket of rotten fruit that you can throw at those people. And I think we would be the better for it. Whew. I yeah I don't know if I would trust Grand Prix competitors around rotten fruit, but uh, you know continue on. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, so I there's a lot of things you can do to avoid draws, uh, and I I don't know I just really appreciate how many of them are just like I never set out with the goal of not drawing a match of magic. I just incidentally by doing the things that I thought are generally good was able to not draw matches in a lot of ways. And then, incidentally, I think that it's just, like, a lot of, like, I th a lot of the things that are just good backroom magic habits are uh, the kind of things that lead to not drawing in the, like, uh, micro ways, it almost feels like. 
I think that uh, a lot of the things that are, I don't know, maybe this is a difference between the EDH era and now, but when you're 3v3 drafting versus your friends, uh, you tend to play things a lot faster and looser than, I feel like EDH tables are more on the slower and looser side of things. And maybe let's get back to those 3v3 habits. That's just all I'm saying. I know it was a talking point among some of the uh, the online Zoomers that some of them have the attitude of, the clock is a resource. I am explicitly given this resource in the rules. And so my half of that, I'm going to make as much use of as I can. And I think that attitude makes some sense when it comes to Magic Online, for example, even though if you're uh, in an event with these people, often it's pretty aggravating. But it, when you have a timer there that starts at 25 minutes and counts down, then you know that if that is uh, getting into the red and then coming down to zero, that's on you. And if you time out because you were trying to use the clock as a resource and then that, that bomb blew up in your face, well, okay, so be it. Um, that really does not carry over to paper. But if someone who was raised in that mentality said, why can't some of that carry over? I don't have a good answer for them other than just the logistics of it doesn't work but yeah in an ideal world then you would have like your allotted share of time and you could parcel that out as you see fit but given that that isn't the world we live in there has to be an understanding of that world that, that reflects that yeah i mean i think that you kind of described the issue of like it becomes a we problem also just like you know have some respect for like do you understand how much of other people's lives you are wasting by being reliably the last person going in a magic tournament round? Like, I don't know. I made this joke when I talked about uh, the odds of unbanning Sensei's Divining Top in Modern, but like, imagine that if you were forced, uh, like, you aren't even playing in a tournament, you're just at your home, and then every hour someone takes you aside and makes you sit in the corner for eight minutes and think about what you've done, you would pretty quickly not do this. But apparently no one's doing this. So, uh, yeah, I guess that's on them. So one thing that comes out of that is just that there's the 15-minute round clock and then there's extra turns. And one thing that seems to have come up a lot in even the high-level events recently is there will be these weird judge calls that drag out the round for 25 or 30 minutes, like these absurdly elaborate judge calls. And it often seems like the people involved in those are the same people who are not making any attempt to finish a round on time. So what you have is you have those people starting or their matches getting dragged out by 25 minutes, and then that match also would have been one of the last ones going, even if there would be no delay whatsoever. Um, and I guess there's there's some selection bias there because you don't notice the people who get the long judge call and then they're done by minute 40 anyway. Uh, but it, there does seem to be just a lot of this, like, how is it the same people ending up in these situations over and over again? And what what can we do about them? Uh, I don't know. You're asking the wrong person. The answer is just finish your round, I guess. I it's I don't know. It, a a database of slow players would be nice, but it's it's hard. It, it's the kind of thing that requires constant policing, and that that's hard to offer. I mean, currently, there isn't a database of actual cheaters who have been disqualified for far more. Uh, you know, well uh, drawn out crimes than uh, than slow play. So that may be a stretch goal at this point. But when it comes to the extra turns of it all, just philosophically for you, I know that 
it's easy for a lot of people to they're, they're playing super fast and then once time is called well then suddenly people relax and those those turn those extra turns often become very long by themselves because we have more time to think now we can figure out the nuances of this this high stakes situation i wonder if there should be some more urgency to actually play faster in those spots like faster than the regular turn in a regular 50 minute portion of a match of magic if that makes sense because like those are the people who are dragging the tournament out and doing so in a way where they have the most eyes on them and so uh, subconsciously but maybe also just consciously if those people are taking forever to finish their turns with judges watching them and nothing has been done about it then some amount of that is going to carry over to the rest of the normal rounds uh in the tournament as well that is fair and that is also at a time where it is directly clear that the time that they are spending there is time that is lost by every other person in the tournament at the same time i don't know how often if maybe a little slower I would be interested to see how long the average extra turn takes versus, I don't know, uh, the five turns in the middle of game two of a match. I think that there's a problem where often the extra turn turns are at these complicated, uncertain points of the game, and you've just given the players, like, they have tried to play super fast the last X number of turns, and it, it kind of snaps off. It I don't think it is reasonable to be like, okay, well, you are playing deliberately excessively fast for a reason the past 10 minutes to try and finish this round like i don't expect players to continue playing at that pace after i think that judging them against the norm of their match is probably better but like if that norm is not good enough then yeah i don't know give them a warning but mm -hmm. i guess here's the problem if you give someone a slow play warning and extra turns don't they just there's just two more turns right <laughs> well I don't, so, I don't think that's actually how it works but yeah so if they get the slow play warning before extra turns, then I think it's seven extra instead of five. But if if the slow play warning were to be given in extra turns, then I don't think it changes. And it would actually be a really perverse incentive sometimes if it did change, right? Like if you think you need those seven turns, then you just slow to a crawl. Uh, so yeah, it, it's a weird spot. Uh, but speaking of the the judging over it all, I think this is one of the, the thorniest aspects of all of this because if someone asked me, what should I do if I expect that my opponent is, is slow playing, whether intentionally or just unintentionally, whatever, I don't know if I could answer in good faith that you should call a judge to resolve the issue. Like, maybe you, you do it anyway just so that there's some, you know, if the same judge staff gets enough calls about this player over the course of the day, those are going to add up to more than the sum of their parts, hopefully, even if in the moment no action is taken or nothing is done. But what is going to happen most of the time is especially at the lower levels of play, that immediately is going to get interpreted as a hostile act, and there's no guarantee it will lead to the opponent actually playing faster at all, but it is more likely to lead to them just not cooperating in any of this shared social contract stuff that we're talking about. But then once a judge comes over and you say, I, could, you, could you watch for pace of play, however neutrally you frame that, what's going to happen is they will stand there for 15 or 20 seconds. The opponent, knowing that they are being scrutinized, will probably make some attempt to hurry things up a little bit and then the judge will move on and then nothing will change and i don't know what i want them to do instead because if you look at the ratio of judges staffing these events to players in the events there is 
not enough time in the day, not enough judges in the room to do anything more than to come by and stand there for half a minute and then to move on to whatever the next thing is, which may be the next player who is playing slowly or who needs to be monitored to some degree. Um, so I, this isn't a, a, an easy fix where, oh, why don't the judges just stay there for as long as I need them to? Um, but also, I don't know what I meant to do as a player when the the suggested recourse for every other issue of call a judge and we'll sort it out just very explicitly does not work in in this case. And I think if you ask the vast majority of competitive players, they would agree on that. I think most judges, frankly, would agree on that too, especially the ones who also take their turns in the trenches as players who will have been on the other end of this themselves. But I don't know what either of those candidates meant to do about it. I think that there's some amount of just faith in the system to resolve some of the issues that you have to have. I also just, I don't know, I have, <laughs> if you are talking about like, well, what do you do about the problem that your opponents might react poorly to having a judge call on them? You're asking the wrong person, okay? We're just going to, oh, oh yeah, we're going to put that outright. <laughs> <laughs> so just, it's just like, I don't know, deal with it. So let's, I, I actually, this came up in, um, there, well, maybe we'll shift to this week's discourse, but one of the things in this week's discourse was, Something involving a uh, rewind of a game state involving a blossoming tortoise. And the player was, uh, after the fact, on Twitter, added their opponent and was like, I cannot believe you involved a judge in this. We could have just fixed it. As soon as someone says that, like, I'm just like, okay, so uh, have you thought about this at all? Or are you actually just a cheater? Because just like... The game rules exist to, like, because, like, especially the MTR. The MTR has been sculpted really carefully in a lot of spots to resolve situations in a known way. And, like, if you want to try and avoid the MTR, there's one of two things happening. One, which is, like, the MTR is stupid and you would like it to see it change. But, like, I don't, like, I don't know. Trying to avoid the MTR, realistically, all it does is it benefits people trying to cheat. Realistically, the thing you can do, and in practice, the thing that has changed the MTR more than anything else is the rules have applied in a very stupid way at a time that has become high profile. For example, when someone has revealed all of the cards in their deck and found the World Spine Worm in their sideboard. Um, then the MTR changed to fix that issue. The issue doesn't change because two people, like, untap their blossoming tortoises in combat. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't fix the issue to go through this. Like, just, like, let the judges get involved and resolve it the way the rules are. That's what you kind of signed up for when you sat down to the tournament. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I... So th this is a, maybe a good place to end the topic on, unless you have any further thoughts on it, because when it comes to how to judges adjudicate this, there's, like, uh, specific examples where it is easy to point to examples of where this went wrong, as opposed to, yeah, I think the, the judges, you know, stepped in at about the right time and issued the the appropriate penalty i will say there is a certain subjectivity as a player to just how long the passage of time takes where you know someone who is just standing behind them if they are checking the tape or checking their watch it's like no actually you've been taking a solid minute on this with with no uh apparent sense that anything is going to change anytime soon so no yeah it, it makes total sense um so i guess there's, there has to be some amount of understanding just by players individually that yeah, you might not think that you're dragging your feet here, but you probably are. And uh, it's very rare that people are like, oh yeah, it was right for the judge to uh, to issue me a slow play caution. I, I was taking too long. And I guess if um, if they were saying that, then it's kind of a, they're telling on themselves to some degree. But like, 
it would be nice to hear that a little bit more i suppose um but that that is maybe a good place to leave that topic off for now because i i I don't know what the fix is i think we (laughs) we're just all in this together and hopefully we can make it a little easier on each other here yeah i again the the mtr should like there should be changes considered but what you can affect is sitting down and playing your matches in the best way you can to avoid becoming part of that two percent of all matches drew at world statistic okay and now discourse 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 okay so which one do you want to start with first we can talk about uh is coaching a scam or is competitive magic a scam uh, well, th- that last one is a pretty expansive topic. Let's start with, uh, is coaching a scam? So I, we should, we'll, we'll give the context here. So this was the tweet uh, today from John Corpora, really helping any of us uh, late uh, late in the week podcasters have something new to chew on here. So uh, his tweet was, I have won three RCQs, eight PPTQs, cast two GPs and one SCG, humble brags, good job, John, and have never been on the Pro Tour. But if the people I see on here offering magic coaching are any indication, it might be time for me to get in on the grift. Your thoughts? Oh, gosh. Um, I think that there are some layers to this where, like, uh, there is... This is an issue of how do you assign qualifications? Because there are people who have won Grand Prix I would not trust a coach. There are people who have won Pro Tours I would not trust a coach. There are people who have not... I think maybe... No, they've, they've probably played in Grand Prix, but have certainly not top-aided Grand Prix that I would really trust... Um, the problem is, is that because the metric, it's very, (laughs) there isn't like a, uh, a Yelp for magic coaching, (laughs) just like where you're like, this person got all the, like, there's just no, there's no system to rate how good someone is as a teacher when they're teaching you what to do in part, in part because one, it's just, there's not volume in part because two, there's no organized system. And in part because three, it's not like, I don't know. Maybe this is like the net discussion of like, how much does a specific person gain from a specific amount of coaching is kind of really hard to quantify. And it's largely based on, did you feel like you learned something? Which I don't know how to quantify that. I don't know. Maybe that's like the really the issue, right? Is it's really easy for someone to like, offer advice that helps someone at the FNM level go from like 2-2 to 3-1 at their tournaments but it's hard to quantify like were they a good coach is their time like like what is their time worth and that makes the whole thing a giant mystery and it's very easy for people to sort of oversell their talents based on like specific small scale stories of success or volume when like I don't know I, I do specifically want to call out like um, as much as we sort of uh picked at the the lords of limited how i would prepare for the pro tour episode uh those guys like know their stuff about telling people like their thoughts and like how to communicate things in a way that's productive and under like finding that is difficult and i think it's weird because it is like having accolades is important but like having that skill is also important but then there's also just a lot of people out there who just don't have either the, the thing about uh lack of feedback as well where I don't want there to be a Yelp for magic content or magic coaching, but uh, I feel like we are overcorrecting in the other extreme where like the idea of just saying to someone, I think this is bad content or I, I think you are not a uh, efficient or useful coach, like people would just collapse into their fainting sauce over that. Um, and 
So I'm not sure where the medium is. I don't uh, think we need people just going like full karate arm every time they have a, a bone to pick with or something. <laughs> but, but also, like, if I think there is, frankly, a lot of bad magic content or specifically just superfluous magic content out there. Whereas if you are writing the fourth best Rakdos midrange cyborg guide and pioneer, why? Like, who is this for? Who is reading this? And I guess if if people want to chuck five dollars at your patreon to get this on top of all of the the top three cyborg guys they paid for as well i guess that's harmless like people are getting what they paid for but i'm still gonna at least privately or perhaps to uh trusted friends wonder like yeah what, what's your deal like why, why do you think you're qualified to actually do this um and that's gonna carry over to some magic coaching too where i think it is part of magic's enduring appeal that there are local maxima and the people often have mastery of these very specific things in their niche that other people who are generally more skilled than them do not have um so yeah i, I would trust that most people would come to me first for analytic coaching even though uh yeah there are a lot of players uh at the pc who are going to be much better than me at just piloting random deck in random format uh, and i think that does that, that that is a rational choice for those people to make there, there's the issue you mentioned of what is the criteria for success and there's nothing that you're really grading your coach on and unless they did such an egregiously bad job that you know that you you're not going to sign up with them again and you're going to tell your friends to to run for the hills if they sign up to then what what is there really left to say and so at the same time I think a lot of people who are at the the lower levels of play, if they go to basically any coach who is worth their stuff, they're going to get the kind of instant level up moments that they can, in their testimonials, say, oh, th this person did a great job. I, I, I Just after one hour of them, I, I view the game in a whole new way. Uh, but is it them or is it just these are fundamentals, which maybe you're learning them by booking an hour with this person instead of reading Mike Flores in 2006, but it's kind of an easy way to get to the same easy goal whereas i think once you you reach a certain point it's actually pretty difficult to have any kind of uh instantaneous epiphany about magic theory or magic knowledge and a lot of it is just giving yourself the tools to improve over time or you're you're sowing these seeds which hopefully will germinate in months or years but that's not what the coach wants. The coach wants you to come away feeling like you have just had your, your world transformed and to tell all their friends about that. So there is something of a perverse incentive there, not one that I think really colors what the coaches are doing. But I think you, like if you just took a look at the reviews that most coaches receive, it's going to tell you more about those people and their place just climbing the magic ladder than it is about the coach or their skills or the nature of their coaching, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think that, yeah, like it's kind of like you said. Also, like one thing you said is like, okay, so you said, yes, if someone wants amulet coaching, sure, they can come to you first. How many hours do you have in a day? I think that at least in like the Patreon cyborg guide thing, like there's no amount of like this, the same thousand people can all read the same cyborg guide and maybe they want a second or third opinion. But the same thousand people could not have the same coach. That's just, that's just not how it works. Mm -hmm. And that raises a larger issue of how big is the market for magic coaching? So if you try and ask how many full-time magic coaches are there, firstly, that's it's just hard to get that information. Um, but then I can think of, you know, 
Mason Clark, and then like one or two other names come to mind. And then there are people who they, they have a Metaphee page or whatever, and they'll they'll take coaching if you ask, and they'll have a few clients here and then. But they're not full time magic coaches. This is just a side hustle of source. And so I don't know what it looks like on the supply side or on the demand side. I think there are people who, if there are enough people out there looking to pay, probably could do a good job and would be willing to be full-time coaches but are are the people there to actually justify that I, i'm not sure that they are you are listen every single online service where people are marketing their skills and time in this way has this exact same kind of bell curve like it's that's just how it works when you are using the internet as a solicitation method for uh your personal time or other offerings like that's just that's just how this economy works there certainly are people too who they will say things like i've had so many people dming me asking me for advice on this or for my sideboard guide and i i know that magic players do be sliding into the dms and it's certainly something that happens a lot but even given that like are they are you really getting 25 people all asking you for the same information or when you say a lot of people do you mean yeah three people just asked me out of the blue and that's more than the zero people who are dming me on any on any given day or do you mean I am a big magic personality who usually is beating off the the, the the gremlins in the DMs with a stick, and now there are twice as many gremlins as there were yesterday because I just top-aided a GP or something? Top 0.01% magic coaching coming to your Twitter bio any day now. <laughs> yes, if you want to book me for uh, amulet coaching or just general uh, magic and or life advice, uh, you know, form an orderly queue and I'll, I'll get to you when I can. Yeah, I... Yeah, it, again, it's just... What are you hoping to get out of it, and what does what should someone expect out of it, and how much do you trust the person to tell you that upfront? When has anyone ever been accurate in assessing their own magic skills? Everyone, you know, this is this is a classic. This is the uh, the the CFB drafting the players on their team in the house draft thing. Like that, you're never going to get an accurate response. Yeah. Uh, so moving swiftly on to the this much broader discourse topic of uh, is competitive magic a a scam and or an evoke uh, depending on how you you like to view things. Um, I would have to put like so I I have a very long history of tax receipts. Uh, this is what like the this whole Jake Brown posted this. This is my expenses on the year for magic. This is what I earn. Like I'm negative X amount. So first off, I do want to say that uh, a lot of his expenses are like especially like you are going to have a much more profitable time playing magic when it's you and seven friends in a van driving across the country and staying in the same hotel room and splitting costs than it is if you are flying across the country at a prime time Friday night flight, uh, staying in your own hotel room. I'm just going to, I'm going to put that right out there. Yes. Um, but well, although I, on that is interesting that Jake almost, tax in the other direction from a lot of people i've seen where i think he said yeah i wish i had uh just crammed seven people into a hotel room and, and saving money that way in the same thread where he's saying that like i'm doing well enough for myself and you know good job drake outside of this that like it doesn't make sense for me to try and pivot into doing magic stuff whereas i feel like the answer i hear from almost every other kind of older magic player who has you know established their own career and income and so on over time is yeah the thing that i do with that now when i'm going to magic tournaments is i book my own place and i i get the nice train ticket or i get the whatever because i can afford to do it and i'm old and i'm past the days where i want to listen to some guy drunkenly snoring in my ear at 2 a.m i can just pay for the convenience and so that's what i'm gonna do and i, I don't think it's 
necessarily fair to say, oh, this is a an inherent expense of playing Pro Magic as opposed to this is just a choice you make when you're traveling and you you made a rational choice for you. Yeah, I so again, I was saying I like have tax records of this and I haven't really thought about like when I was really in the grind, what my like tournament income versus expenditure was because the bulk of the income was largely writing based. I, I don't ever think that you have to be having like a top five play, like not top five, but like, you know what I mean? Like a hugely impressive year to have. Uh, your tournament income, you know, as a full-time Magic player, when, even back in the day when it was a lot more feasible, your income as a full-time Magic player was not usually based off of your tournament success. This is something that you see people who were exclusively, you know, tournament players first, content producers like fifth, like the Alex Haynes of the world. Uh, they said that all the time. They just, that's just not how it worked for them. Yeah, and there were, if you go down the, the thread there, there are examples in the replies of, I think one of the famous ones is Brian Kilber saying uh, there was a season where he lost money on GPs despite like top 80 multiples and like qualifying four worlds on the back of those finishes or I know from speaking to Calcano, right? Like the, the perennial like road warrior. Um, there were seasons where, you know, he lost money because, yeah, if you're going to GPs and one of them is in Europe and one of them is in Asia and one of them, oh, this one's in Costa Rica or something like it almost doesn't matter how well you do with those like that is just an expensive uh itinerary and it is going to be hard to actually boil that up to any real degree and so yeah i mean that that was always the tagline back in the day of this is a loss leader for you and hopefully the tournaments are fun and the company is fun that's why you're doing it so that you can get your foot in the door either with a writing gig or then i guess in in game design or something later on or in pinnacle sports maybe or you know you you find a way to convert that into an actual stable position that doesn't have to do with what you win in, in magic tournaments yeah and i'm just i found i found one of these old things that i'm looking back and jake said what like four thousand dollars for was it a pro tour and like three grand prix um that feels relatively high on the expense totals but maybe not even with inflation like i don't know like it's pretty easy to like add up your travel expenses for, you know, back in the day, you'd go to like, I don't know, four pro tours and all this other stuff. And they pay for your plane tickets. Like, it's pretty easy for that to add up to still like 10K, 13K of just like, oh, well, I got to book, uh, you know, a flight to Des Moines, Iowa in September. It's like, what, who flies there? Like, it doesn't even make sense. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. You kind of have to expect this. And that's kind of what it comes with the territory of like, this is what you're showing up and doing. On the same hand, he's posting this the weekend after everyone is posting their like three thousand dollar Ragavan. So I think right? there are probably <laughs> ways to be more price efficient with uh, what you are doing than that. Yeah, I mean, the opening uh, tweet says, "You know, I lost four thousand four hundred sixty nine dollars playing professionally over the last year. That's a vacation to Europe, uh, a beach, a big TV, lots of other things." So to use my most recent uh, scoreboard as an example, right? Like going to PT Barcelona that was a vacation to Europe. That was me going to one of my favorite places in the world to hang out with people I like at a hobby that I really enjoy. And even if that O2 star had kept being an O2 star, like it had stayed on that trajectory, I had financially budgeted this and also mentally budgeted this as if the tournament doesn't go well, that sucks. But also I'm going to make the most of the rest of the experience and it's going to be a fun time for that given what it is I get to see people i haven't seen in years and all, all this other great stuff and so i think if you 
are just looking at the financials, then it is basically never going to make sense. But if you view it as this is what traveling around the country or around the world for a hobby is going to cost you, and that's part of what you want to do once you earn income is get to spend it on things that you enjoy doing, then yeah, if it wasn't magic, it's going to be I don't know, choose your athletic pursuit of choice or choose, I I mean, something else, right? Like there are steep costs associated with a lot of these things. Often those costs are harder to reliquidate back into currency than than magic cards are or other expenses. And like, I don't know, I feel like some of this just kind of comes with the territory. I'm in a spot where I can say this at this point, but if you get into a spot where you are relying on the cash from the tournament to make the trip justifiable or to like mentally solidify you in your choice to go to the tournament then like you're almost signing up for defeat before you've even jumped on the plane there yeah i mean the great comparison is how much does a set of clubs and uh, a full 18 at the local course like you haven't even left your whole hometown to go run that and it, how much does that cost mm-hmm. a few other observations here so it is uh interesting to me to see people in the comments who frankly under a system which is almost absurdly like unsustainably generous in its payouts and so on would still be losing money because that's the the rung on the ladder that they are at and by definition like only what is it 10 percent of people are going to cash any given poker tournament magic tournament like the other 90 percent have got to make peace with it somehow um a lot of the people who are perennially in that 90% saying, oh, this is why I quit competitive magic. Like, that's not why. Like, this isn't why. It's because it wasn't working for you. Fair enough. Good to be aware of that. But, like, I'm not sure what the system would have to look like for it to make sense for you. And on the other extreme, you know, Jake says uh, in the thread, you know, based on my hourly consulting rate, I lost thousands more dollars uh, by playtesting for the tournament and doing all this magic adjacent work instead of just doing my job. And it's like, okay, well, again, good for you, but that is always going to be the case. Like, even going back to the the MPL days, right, where the, the premise is we were able to suddenly inject a lot more money into the system, and the result is 32 or however many people are going to have an actual salary job out of this, and fuck the rest of you, but these 32 are going to be uh, living at large. Even then, you had, I think, was it Beckstrom who turned down the position because hey I've, I've got a nice gig at direwolf and i want to focus on that and financially that's going to make sense for me to do as well and just looking at the demographics of magic right like if you are uh you know your, your friend who is working at her software job like even if she is the best magic player in the world and she's probably not financially she just stay at her software job and then just go and grind magic on the weekends and that's honestly a, a much better setup than a lot of people have whether it's for work or for uh leisure or whatever I want to also go back to that statement of like, I could be doing X for, this is the kind of thing that when you talk to people who ground poker in the two thousands, they said, in retrospect, I should have realized the point where I was like, well, I was going to go out and hang out at my friend's place for two hours. But when I was there, all I could think about was how I was losing 120 bucks an hour, by not playing poker. That's Hmm. the thing that they always cite as this is probably not a healthy thing to be doing. That's the point I should have realized it. Like that is. I don't even know where to begin with that. Like, that's that's something else. Like, maybe at the point where you're like, yeah, like, you know, if I don't make this, you know, twelve fifty seven an hour right now, I'm not paying my rent. Like, yeah, okay. You have bigger things to focus on than what you are, like, going to the Magic Tournament for the weekend. But when you're like, you know, I could have just booked in another 23 hours at $137 an hour and made this extra money and then 
Like, I don't know, man. Just, I, what, what were you going to do with it? I will say, I think there are a few uh, good points uh, throughout the thread here. So uh, when he says, plan your food and drink better than I did, this was like a big part of the the budget that kind of hit me out of the blue. Uh, that has been my experience just going to, I mean, I'm not going to exclude Barcelona from this. I was certainly guilty, but just various American cities for Magic tournaments has been like, yeah, if you can find food, it's going to be expensive. There's not going to be much of it. And you're going to wish that you had just gone to the the CVS like the moment you arrived and stocked up on at least snacks to have as a fallback for the weekend, if not like actual meals. And then ideally probably plan the actual meals a bit better too. Like I, I, I don't think I've ever come away from a magic road trip thinking, yeah, I spent too much time figuring out what I was going to do for food. Like I, I, I can't recall ever thinking that. Uh, I'm kind of on the flip side of like, I should have planned out which really awesome place I went to dinner at in whatever city, but also Shout out to, the, I believe there's still a Jimmy John's next to the Pittsburgh Convention Center where I'll be going for Eternal Weekend in a, a month or two, you know? Nice, the, nice. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I, I, this is not something I relate to generally. I don't really have a, I consider this a relatively low, like, I don't, what percentage of the, like, your food expenditures, unless you're trying really hard or, like, trying medium in Vegas, are going to exceed the cost of, like, your hotel selection or even like i don't know an uber to the site from wherever you're at like i don't know that that it's just margins at most i i really don't have a i'm of the yeah. opposite opinion there yeah so I, I view that more as a quality of life thing than a expenses thing where like not to be all of the you know get a good night's sleep and stay hydrated guy although honestly i think that guy's got a bad rap as of late uh but just yeah if i'm gonna be putting this money in elsewhere and this effort to go and do a thing i want to make sure that the the basic essentials are taken care of more than they are by default the way that a lot of people assume and to some extent that's just me as a picky eater who is also a diabetic like i do actually have to devote some uh thought and preparation to these things and if i don't then i feel the consequences but like i think everyone could stand to be somewhat mindful of that and then i think the Honestly, the more general takeaway I got from Drake's thread is I wish there was a renewed online path to competitive play again that didn't involve all of these various calculations. And you can play at home from your pajamas. Um, and I, I did not enjoy the arena era much. And during the height of COVID, I was just thirsting to play Paper Magic again at all times. But um, especially having listened to, you know, uh my teammate and uh you know general good guy nick prices just experienced just trying to leave the philippines to go to a magic tournament or I, there, there are people who have it a lot worse than i do just nestled away here in canada um like there are people who every single magic trip is just uh, like a hellish uh voyage at the best of times and i wish they at the very least had some some parallel track uh, online that they could compete on whether it's Modo or Arena, whatever, like you you can haggle over the details. But I, I wish that there was at least that. And hey, Arena Championships for us this weekend. Not that anyone gives a shit or is given a reason to give a shit. Uh, but I, I guess tune into that uh, if, if this episode goes up in time. Um, but I wish that stuff like that was more common. And that, yeah, you if you're in one of these underserved markets or if you're Jake living the high life in Denver, either way, you could actually engage with that in a way that makes sense for you and not be faced with the the blunt logistical problems of well how do i get to uh the airport from my red eye to columbus and such and such 
Yeah, I I don't know. I firmly miss the like single day online arena event. You play, you know, eight rounds on a top eight, like one K in your pajamas era, but I don't think that's ever coming back, unfortunately. But I wish it did. I my complaint about the arena opens is that I often have to play for two days and it feels kinda <laughs> like it's it's the expense of like your Saturday dis- like you can win on Saturday and then it disappears if you do bad on Sunday and you're like, uh Whereas, like, usually if you, like, are in a, like, you don't, I don't know, when you play a GP day two, you aren't really starting from zero unless you, like, I'm again, I'm comparing back in the day when it's like, okay, so if you 6-3 day one of a GP, like, it's like, okay, well, I kind of deserve if day two goes bad and I get nothing. Whereas, like, the arena opens, like, you, you have to spend a day hitting your run, it takes three sealed pools, you're like, oh, gosh, this one's unplayable, my only commons that see play in, like, a real draft deck are, like, pump spells, okay, we're throwing that one away. And then, like, I don't know, you just play day two and you open your pool at a prescribed time and then you're just like, okay, so I'm playing the actual event now and I'm already down half a day. I don't know. I don't <laughs> love that part, but uh, yeah. But I, I guess we can close by briefly touching on the uh, Pioneer results from the weekend. So uh, there were two RCs. Uh, so f- worth noting at the outset just how long this RC season is. So a lot of the Europeans who are at Worlds had the sense of whiplash where immediately after getting home from Vegas and hopefully not contracting any kind of uh, severe plague along the way, immediately had to hustle to get to Lille and and play this RC or not. And I think this tournament was almost notable in the absence of a lot of the, you know, the Nassifs of the world, for example, who, if this was two weeks later, probably would have taken the chance to go out there and see people and and play a high-level event. But coming so soon after Worlds, it it just really wasn't worth it, especially when they're just qualified for the tournament of heats anyway. Um, And then also uh, the uh, Canada West RC out in Calgary, which we're mostly going to skip over. That one, uh, nothing too notable came out of that other than just a a new crop of uh, Canadian small children doing very, very well. Um, But over in Lille, there were some more interesting developments. Uh, So including among the best decks, just them getting a few new uh, bells and whistles, and then also some just very weird shit coming out of uh, out of left field as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, the thing I do want to start with is how can Lotus Field keep getting away with this? Just every time. there's just, Everyone's like, it won't be me who loses to Lotus Field this tournament. It'll be someone else who plays the 3%, or and then there's just two in the top eight, and everyone's like, well, it's not my job to fix this problem. Yeah, I'm excited to see how that storyline plays out over yet another round of RCs, where I, I was the one coming in here uh, at the end of last year saying, yeah, Lotus Field was a great call for this weekend, but next weekend, people will surely show up with their damning spheres, and they, they just didn't do that. So we, we will see if that changes this time around. Probably not, if history is any indication, but we'll see. There were also some interesting uh, advances in technology in some of these Lotus Field lists. So we had a uh, uh, perennial grinder Sam Rolf, who maybe has been on the end of those, like, I- I'm going to use my last $20 to pack myself into a hotel uh, bathtub with seven other people situations, uh, and usually won enough money to keep that going for, uh, for for the next season. So he was in the top eight with just pretty stock Lotus Field. But then there was also this Spanish contingent who really uh, put the work in with their approach to the deck. And the, the main advance there was uh, discontinuity in the main deck over some of the other flex slots like the, the Voyaging Satyrs or the Hope Tenders, those kind of uh, ramp creatures, and then over some of the very marginal draw spells like the Shimmers or anything too. Uh, so discontinuity here, it's a ramp spell of sorts with Lotus Field. I mean, you, we know this from the blue-white Lotus Field decks and uh, from you know various weird standard decks in the past. 
And then also, sometimes when you're just doing the Lotus Field thing, it is a, like, weirdo time walk of sorts, or uh, in the mirror. Like, if you can pass a turn with discontinuity up, there's actually very little the opponent can do a lot of the time. Like, especially if they have to go through some emergent ultimatum line to, to win, you just let ultimatum resolve, uh, put two spells of your choice on the second, exile those, and then even if they're not formally locked out, they're, like, pretty much dead to rise. Um, so... A very flexible card that just has a bunch of weird roles in the deck and i don't know how much that specifically can be credited with their amazing success uh, or how much it's just lotus field is a great choice and these people put a lot of time into lotus field but a little bit of both maybe i love the sideboard on on this list with uh discontinuity it just it's just got good sideboard vibes just like silence a lot of voyaging satyrs like temporary lockdown like you are you are fundamentally shifting your deck in a lot of good directions for a deck that doesn't do a lot of directional shifting. Also, um, the other thing worth noting is just, like, the full formal adoption of the Balaged recovery kill over anything else. Um, I think both lists were on the, the Chandra loop kill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both lists had some number of Chandras, and that that is just a staple at this point. So even in a closed Texas tournament, I would expect to see uh, some, some Chandras on the other side. Outside of that... Uh, both variants of Ragdos, both Sacrifice and Midrange, actually had a pretty decent weekend here. Although, the the larger story is, no deck had a good weekend, really. I think the top five or six decks by metagame share all had a sub-50% win rate, and you have to go down to, like, I think it's like Greasefang or something, or an actual Lotus Field, like, nestled in the 6% range or something to find a deck that, that did well. Yeah, I don't really have a good explanation for why this always happens in Pioneer. Hey, do you? Like, it just happens every single time. It's just like, <laughs> oh, everyone plays a good deck. They all lose. Every single person loses, except for misplaced Ginger. They all lose. Yeah, I, maybe the format's just great. Maybe that's the... Or it's perfectly balanced. Maybe that's the, the takeaway here. But yeah, I mean, for, for all the people who have been catabolling to have something for Mono Green Band, Mono Green got beat up this weekend. Again. Like, this often seems to happen at the RCs. So, uh, once you get to the highest levels of Pioneer competition, the deck just kind of flounders around. Um, and I, I say that as someone who qualified at my RC with it last time around and was expecting to default to it again in a few months' time, but I don't know if that's going to be the smart move anymore. Yeah, I mean, the deck that I called a bad Mono Green ended up in, like, first place after the Swiss, which was a... Uh... Or is it first place after the Swiss? Samuel Estrada with the, like, <laughs> Yorion, Kinnon, Luca, Bring to Light deck that just, like, has all the well, things. I I love the Bring to Light edition. That That's really smart. Love this that. Is, but, like... Yeah. Th- this list is, is something else. So, the we, we've seen some of these kind of green-centric uh, builds of the Rona combo decks with their elves and Tyvars and so on. And, like, okay, we, we've kind of become accustomed to that. And then one of the trends that we noted at the time, I think in our nonsense segment a few weeks ago, was this whole uh, Luca Atraxa thing being grafted into those, which I impressively found room for in 60 cards. And maybe the way that you find room for everything is just to go up to 80 cards, which uh, Estrali did here uh, with Yorion, of course, hanging out on the sideboard. And then using some of those remaining slots, we have this <laughs> the small brings light package with an unmoored ego and a witch's vengeance and the the obligatory uh valky slash tibalt as well um and then it, it's kind of funny how few other relevant cards the brings light can find in this deck so you can't get tyvar or luca uh, you can't get the con the great creators which are another one of these uh the, the win conditions here once you're doing the the rona loop thing 
you you can get Rona, but you're paying five mana for a Rona, and I guess you you can't even get Mark Zamba, and you can't get the Khan that finds the Mark Zamba. You can get Fay of Riches for granted to find the okay, so that that kind of works. Um, you can get Retraction Helix, but you're spending five mana for that. But if if that's going to win you the game, then go off, I suppose. Uh, but it's of all the things to become like the tertiary package in the deck, I would not have picked a Bring to Light package. But I guess if you you, you kind of uh, ignore a lot of the Torbox aspects for now. Just in your deck that already wants to have a ton of Chaotids and Elves and Mox Ambers, just five mana Bring to Light for Valky as a backup plan, like by itself, actually sounds kind of appealing to me. Yeah, I think that it also plays this role of like you're going up to 80 cards for other reasons and it's just a way to cheat your card counts on some of your critical things a bit while also providing power. Yeah, I know uh, Nasif was streaming this deck a bit, and it gets some quite hilarious uh, sample hands, but actually seems like it performs better than it might look on paper. And Estrade leading the Swiss uh, here and finally falling in top four, but going to see him back on the Pro Tour and lo love to see him doing it with this deck in particular. I guess we should touch on Gruel Vehicles quickly. This is a deck which people never pay much respect to, but it feels like in specifically the RCs, it's almost like Tron at the modern PT, is at every other level of competition, higher or lower, you just never see it, but then specifically the RCs, it just cleans up every single time. Yeah, I really like the addition of Huntsman's Redemption. The thing that I hadn't really thought about is just like the natural curve of like, if you play Elvish Mystic into Huntsman Redemption, not only have you gone like one drop, three drop, your next turn is float a mana, sack my elves, get my, like, other really good three drop, and you've just locked up a really powerful start every single time this card turn twos. It's like, I'm trying to think of, I don't know, it's, I don't want to, fine. It's the 2023 call of the herd. That's what this card is. Except for the flashback <laughs> is your choice of good thing, except for, instead of another elephant. Yeah. It, there is also the, this self-contained combo finish with Redemption of Redemption finds uh for darren thorseeker the next turn on its way out uh, redemption pumps something thorseeker pumps it even further and it was already pretty big to begin with just looking at the creature sizing in the deck it also has trample from redemption too so it gets a big hit in and then thorseeker can fling it to finish it off so that's a nice little uh one-two punch there my concern is in a deck that already had more three drops than it could possibly find room for, and like there were built to the deck with like Fable and stuff, or Megalos, or just name your random three drop of choice. I, I worry that this is one which is pretty bad when you're behind, and also susceptible to you know, you play your elf into redemption, they kill either your elf or your uh, token, doesn't matter that much, and then your net your follow up is sacrificing your other thing to maybe find yet another like mostly interchangeable three drop just to try and get back on board again so when you're ahead this card is really good and when you're behind this card is pretty mediocre and i i think there are enough three drops out there that you can probably just do better than that but i, I don't know i i think your deck with four reckless storm seeker is already admitting that it's going to have problems if your opponent is going like full press removal on you um so i wouldn't worry too much about that Sure. I, I guess there's also um, some combinations with like a Crow and War. Now in your Thrill Seeker Redemption deck, like you do actually have some Sacrifice Outlets you compare that with, which is pretty nifty. Yeah, I agree with that there for sure. Yeah. So uh, worth taking note of that deck. We'll, we'll show up in some numbers because it always does. Uh, Greasefang had a pretty high win rate. And then I guess uh, Phoenix was one of the talks of the town, uh, did win the RC in Canada. And then. Uh, Various builds popping up here in the top 16. Uh, Canister qualifying with like a pretty 
a classic list just with sleight of hand as the only real new card but then uh gabriel soto just outside the top eight uh with picklock prankster demilic phoenix and it it feels like uh demilic is a card which again has its day in the sun about every five months or so and then no one ever plays it again yeah i like some of the things that uh we're seeing with this exact list of like oh well we're really heavy on you know going in further on the graveyard because we don't really expect any rest in pieces anywhere in this metagame right now. Uh, it just it just isn't a thing that's happening when the primary decks are green and Rakdos. Um, I like the look of it for this weekend. I don't know if it's persistent. Demi- it's hard to say any list is going to be persistent if it involves Demi-Lich, but like, it is nice to remember that you can bust that one out, especially in the like world of sleight of hands and everything else. Yeah, and then beyond that, uh, Heroic was on an upswing, even though Mono Green certainly was not, and so that's its natural play. Uh, natural Prey was not really anywhere to be found. The only other thing I want to highlight before we get out of here was um, there was a Rakdos list that I think did qualify or was just on the cusp in Lil, which had this small Beseech the Mirror package. Um, so against, you know, you, you can imagine optimizing your four drop for the situation against like mono green like you have a main deck extinction event and two ways to find it and that really changes some of the dynamics of the matchup or uh the Rakdos sacrifice matchup traditionally tough in mid-range but you have uh one Khan the great creator and then that in turn can unlock stuff from the sideboard too so uh, there's just a lot of stuff like that which you can't go too hard on it you don't really want to draw two besiegers at any given time but just a small package like that i think helps you kind of cover all of your bases at once in a way that uh deals with some of the natural mid-range issues that you're going to run into and uh fable as it turns out good at many things also good at providing uh fodder every which way for beseech mirror yeah uh i really liked the idea behind it i don't i don't know if i want to say i liked the look of it just because like i haven't played a single game with beseech the mirror and pioneer so i don't know if it gives off like oh gosh i drew my one black 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 spell vibes where my card's uncastable in like 37% 37% of games, but does something else on the others. But like, it's a very interesting idea to start playing with. Yeah. So I think that's going to do it. Uh, anything else on this or really anything before you get out of here for uh, the next few weeks? Are you are, are using your uh, your tournament winnings to go on your own European vacation, as I understand? So uh, you're going to have to fill the void. Uh, some uh, replacement RE con- correspondent will be found, but hopefully you are uh, enjoying your travels in the meantime. I do want to shout out uh, real quick uh, the concept of friends don't let friends play Magmatic Channeler. Uh, there was a player who finished in top 32 of two modern challenges this week and somehow added Magmatic Channeler to their deck between them. And just that card, that card's not good. <laughs> Even if it triggers Flame of an Ord's uh, double up, wouldn't do that. Friends don't yeah. let friends play Magmatic Channeler. I, I like to think their friends are, you know, they know that this guy has a problem and are watching like hawks to make sure that no channels sneak in and then as soon as they drop their guard for a second they, they turn back and go to his goldfish page and uh, my god he stuck two channels back in there again you know he he's got a problem that he just can't quit <laughs> yeah yeah this is the uh the classic gerard fabiano extract uh situation can't stop oh, him. nothing th- th- you can do th- th- there's also oh god this list this is a team of wizards i guess is how the the ai in its uh all-knowing glory would classify this uh it's got the ryan overturf classic over splashing green in your is deck for traverse even world as i tried to answer why this was the case and as far as i could tell it was sorceries for Hercule. i had yeah, to look which... up the text on Hercule to confirm <laughs> i knew what i was talking about but that was what i saw yeah which i i had to read and then i had to read it again and then this whole idea made even less sense to me after that 
Um, well, you see, when you play a sorcery and you have a Hercule, you need other sorceries in your deck. And if you just have it, I got nothing. Uh, mm. Yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> yeah, we, we can find the Lorien Revealed, which then finds a Breeding Pool, which was meant to cast the... Oh, wait, we've already cast it first. Whatever. Well, uh, yeah, we, we can we can figure it out at a later date. Uh, in the meantime, uh, enjoy your travels. Uh, I will uh, find uh, some some people to, to fill the void in the meantime, and I'll let you, the, the listeners out there know what the plans are for the next few weeks, uh, as when I do. Uh, until then, we want to give thanks to our new patrons, uh, Isaiah and Alex, uh, for anyone else out there who wants to join them. You can find the Patreon uh, over at patreon.com slash dominarius underscore judgment uh, you can find it on twitter over at dominaria underscore pod you can find the rest of us there uh posting and or uh consuming content ourselves uh at domin javier at armlx uh you can find everyone uh sinking their teeth into the latest nonsense over in the discord uh link to all of that and much more uh, in the show notes as well uh, and we will be back with some more discourse of our own before too long uh but until then take care everyone <laughs>